now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Welcome you to Bible class today here at St. Paul's in De Pere and all of you who are here and those that are listening on our KFUO listening audience. Today we're going to uh, consider the uh, readings for next week and our first reading is Numbers 11, 4 to 6, 10 to 16, 24 to 29. One of the best sermons I ever heard was preached by Dr. Norman Nagel at the seminary. And he had one of these texts in the lectionary where it skipped verses. So his first sentence was, I wonder what's in the other verses that they don't want us to know. <laughs> you kind of wonder, don't you? But they did, uh, I'll bet some of those, they just kept the, the storyline. So let's look at this Numbers text. Uh, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Who is the rabble? The rabble are all those who were not of Israel. Slaves, servants, those who had left Egypt with the Israelites. That's who the rabble was. But the nation of Israel quickly joined in. And they complained because they were in the wilderness and they had nothing to eat like they used to have in Egypt. Of course, how quickly forget how mistreated they were in Egypt, but they ate better. So they were complaining. They were complaining. Now, this is kind of an appropriate text for me to talk about on my last Bible class Sunday. Because the way Moses expresses his feelings here are the feelings of most pastors at one time or another. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have you made me the leader of this bunch? <laughs> and why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Been there. Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth, that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? 
Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. He's not the only servant. Elijah wanted God to kill him. Just kill me. Okay. Just kill me. Um, I, I heard a good story. Most, many of you know Pastor Ellis Robin. And he was a missionary in Brazil. Well, he had a car, okay? And they had gone into town, the whole family, to do the laundry. It had not been a good week. He, he rode a horse to about three or four stations to preach on Sunday. But he finally got a car, and it was pouring rain, one of those torrential rainstorms in the tropics, and a car broke down. Well, along came another car, and there were members of one of his churches in it. And so, they had enough room to take Joyce and the kids in the laundry, but not Ellis. So Ellis had to walk home in the pouring rain, driving rainstorm, and he was wearing his best suit. And you know what he said? God, just kill me. Okay? Get me out of this jungle, just kill me. Everybody's got their moments. Moses had it here, Elijah had it here, just kill me. I have not been that far. <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered seventy men, the elders of the people, and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and took some of the Spirit was on him, and put it on the seventy elders. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Okay. Moses had complained, I can't carry the burden of this people by myself. Can't do it. So God gives him seventy elders to assist. Seventy elders to assist. And of course, the Lord was leading them through the wilderness in a pillar of cloud. That's what descended on the Ark of the Covenant. That was his, the presence of God. And he gave these 70 elders the ability to prophesy. Now, it wasn't forever. It was short term, but he was showing the people of Israel these people are chosen. They are the ones that are supposed to help Moses with the people. 
in the verses we're not reading and other verses, God does provide meat. You remember quail? Okay, every evening. But that's not included here. Now, what ties this to the gospel lesson is this last paragraph. Now, two men remained in the camp. One was Eldad and the other named Medad. And the spirit rested on them. They were evidently part of the 70, but did not come to surround the tent of meeting. They were among those registered. See, they were the 70, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, from his youth said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. All right, so uh, these two were considered outliers, and they weren't with the group, and they shouldn't be doing this, and so uh, Moses should stop them. Bring it to a stop. They weren't at the tent of meeting. Moses said he's not going to stop them because why are you jealous? Are you jealous of them? Are you jealous? Jealousy is a bad thing. Jealousy can happen at any time, anywhere. It can even happen in a in a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod staff. If you've got a staff member that's jealous of the abilities of the other or how much attention another is getting, uh, jealousy can cause problems just about anywhere. I'm sure those of you that were in business all your life are well aware that you could have jealous jealousy among the ranks of those that uh, they thought got special treatment or were better than others, uh, jealousy in marriages, jealousy anywhere. It can happen anywhere. And it can certainly also happen in the church. So Moses was putting a stop to this before uh, it became rampant. You don't want the 68 guys at the tent to start thinking they were better than everybody else. What they had was a gift from God. What they had was a gift from God. And God wanted them to use it. Don't be jealous of the gifts that God has given you as opposed to someone else. They may have gifts you wish you had, but God calls on you to use the gifts you have. And we all need each other, therefore we should not be jealous of others for what they have, the gifts they have. 
the things they have, the things they have. Jealousy breeds problems. We read about it in the uh, epistle lesson for today in James. So, uh, this text is here. God heard and answered the prayers of Moses. He was frustrated. He was felt helpless and weak. He never crossed into rebellion. But he was at his breaking point. God heard his prayer and answered with those to help him, those to assist him in the ministry. And uh, by the way, in the staff at St. Paul's, there is no jealousy. Because everybody's got so much work to do, they don't have time. Okay? All right. Questions about that lesson? Yes. The what? Yes, and that's, yes, it, it, it's like creating jealousy among the disciples. And uh, the vicar preached on that today, uh, very well, by the way. And he, uh, uh, that's what the disciples in our gospel lesson today were arguing about, who's the greatest. That's an argument of jealousy. In fact, we think their argument went deeper than that. Their argument may have been this. They knew, they had heard enough, Jesus was going to leave them. He was going to die. He was going to leave them. The real argument is, who's going to be in charge when he's gone? Who's going to be, who's going to take the seat when he's gone? Okay. The greatest gets that seat. And that's why he put a stop to it. Other questions? All right, let's look at James. This passage is quoted much, but there is also much understanding about, misunderstanding about it. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. All right. Let's talk about this passage. Many people think that the last resort, if a person is sick, that they call some of the elders of the church and they anoint them with oil and they pray over them and they're going to get well. That's not what we're saying here. Now, first of all, let's talk about this anointing with oil. The anointing with oil is a secondary matter. 
it is of no real importance. And we know that from the Greek verbs. There is always a primary verb in a, in a verse, and then there can be a secondary one, but it's not the same form. So there's a verb, and then there's a participle. Okay? So it's like this. Pray for the person anointing them with oil. The primary thing is prayer. Now, what is this anointing with oil? When we study this carefully, what we see that, you got to remember, they had very little medicine then. Very little medicine. And what they would do is, they would rub the whole person's body with oil just to soothe them and make them feel better. But it had no medicinal purpose. And it does not have any magic, magical properties before God. It's just to make them feel a little better. Kind of give them a massage. Okay? The primary thing is the prayer, okay? Now you say, well, it says there, prayer faith will save one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. There's more than one way for the Lord to raise you up. It might be that you get well and rise and serve the Lord again. It may be that he raises you up to heaven. The Bible talks about three kinds of illness. There is the illness that is ultimately healed in this world. There is the illness in this world that is not healed, but is to the glory of God. And number three, there is sickness unto death. Now, we have an example of the sickness to the glory of God in John chapter 9, where Jesus comes across the blind man. And the disciples ask, how long has this man been blind? Since birth. He was born that way to the glory of God. In other words, he was born blind to the glory of God so that when Jesus came by that day, he would heal him. He was born blind to the glory of God. The glory of God would shine through his blindness and Jesus heals him. And he becomes a testimony to those in the to Pharisees and Sadducees that just Jesus is the Christ. There is sickness that is not healed in this world. Look at the Apostle Paul. He prayed three times for the thorn in the flesh to be taken from him. It was not 
What does God say? My strength is made perfect in weakness. Okay? My strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. So there are those times there's not going to be healing from illness in this world. And we look to God to use even the illness to his glory. We all know people that have been ill most of their lives, and yet they never complain. They always have a positive attitude, always got something good to say, always ready to thank God. So there are, there is that kind of illness. There is illness that is healed. There is illness that is healed through the means God provides. Doctors, medicine, the medical establishment. Then there are Miraculous. Miraculous. There are people that go into the hospital and the doctors say are not going to make it that are still sitting with us. Okay? I don't know how many times I've been called to the hospital, Pastor, it's all over. They're done. Get here as soon as you can. Get there, pray over them next week. They're going home. Okay? How? God. So God can work miraculously, but when we pray for healing, we pray that that's up to Him. Notice when we pray for the sick in church, we always say, Thy will be done. Heal them according to your will. We don't know the will of God. He has not revealed that. It could be that they die and go to heaven. That's his will. But we do not pretend to say that because we send the elders and they pray and they anoint with oil, this is magical healing and the person will be healed and go home. Now notice that the passage ends, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is the salvation here. And the next verse, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Okay. So, the confession of sins precedes the pronouncing of the forgiveness of sins. So, usually when a person is sick, their sins prey upon them. They got nothing to do but sit there and think about it. And they're standing before God. So, sin tends to prey on people who are very sick. So what it's saying is, confess the sin, you will be absolved 
And if the Lord takes you home, you have everlasting life for Jesus' sake. But don't think this is some magical formula. Okay? Don't think this is some magical formula. And so this last verse, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, and he holds before us the prophet Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he was a sinful human being. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Okay? The fact is, Elijah was like us. He prayed, and his prayer was answered. Let there be no doubt, prayer does mighty things and always will because of our mighty God who promises to hear and answer. It's not because of our prayer. It is because of a gracious God who loves us and has opened the throne room of heaven to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. So he always hears and answers even if we pray for great things, you can't outpray God. Can't do it. And I'll give you an example, and it's just happened. How many people sitting in this room believed we could raise seven million dollars for a new school? I didn't. I thought we'd do well to raise five. But we kept praying. Because we knew if we only raised five, we wouldn't make it. Was not going to happen. We prayed and prayed and prayed. So what happened? Seven. We break ground today. Prayer doesn't work mighty things, God does. So we ask him. And sometimes he will say yes. And sometimes he will say no. Sometimes he will say no. So, but that doesn't mean to stop praying, and that doesn't mean to be cynical about prayer Oh, there's no sense in that. He's not going to answer that. He may. He may. It's up to him. It's up to him. Now, we've got a couple of more verses here. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And that's the end of the book. It ends right there. It's kind of an abrupt end. 
But what James was writing about, the problems were that people were forsaking the Christian faith and going back to Judaism and the keeping of the law. That's the one, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, that is, wanders away from the truth of the gospel. And someone brings him back. We all need to be alert to the spiritual feelings or the spiritual failures of each other. We all have them. And we need to be ready as fellow Christians to um, help others find the way back, be witnesses, be accountability to others. That's what James is saying. All right, comments about that lesson. Yes. What, a part, what about that last part of that sentence that um, he will save himself from death? Well, it doesn't mean that you're going to earn your salvation by bringing sinners back. It does not mean that. Uh, what it's alluding to uh, is simply that, that uh, as we read that verse, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. That's not you. That's the person you brought back to the truth. Okay? Love covers a multitude of sin. Have you ever thought that's LCMS? Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate? Think about that for a while. All right. Mark chapter 9. Now, this is what ties in with our gospel reading. John said to him, by the way, this is the only time John's mentioned by name in the Gospel of Mark as speaking. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Doesn't that sound like Joshua saying to Moses, stop these guys from prophesying? Same thing. That's why these lessons are chosen together. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one does a mighty work in my name who does one will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. All right, what is the concern of John? John's concern, as well as the other disciples, notice it says, we tried to stop him, so it was more than John. The disciples are trying to interpret Jesus' words to them, that he only commissioned them to use his name 
to wage battle against Satan. This is very interesting because in this same chapter, the man brought his son to the disciples to cast out, cast out a, uh, a demon. And remember, they couldn't do it. So this raises the whole specter. Are they jealous of this guy that can? Same thing. Jealousy. They couldn't cast out the spirit. This guy is. Okay. Still, they object to others besides themselves using Jesus' name. And Jesus takes issue with this. The offense of the disciples, not the man using Jesus' name. Jesus teaches them that this man is fighting the same battle that Jesus and the disciples are. They are battling the kingdom of Satan. Further, this man, whoever he is, is doing it in Jesus' name. Therefore, Jesus uses this argument. If he's not against us, he's for us. This man is obviously for us and believes himself in the power of Jesus' name. So is probably this man is a believer. Therefore, Jesus will not speak evil of what this man is doing, nor will this man probably speak evil of Jesus. So the disciples are to realize they're not the only ones commissioned to do this. And that those who believe in Jesus, using the name of Jesus, can do these things. Application today, you don't have to be a pastor to forgive someone their sins. You don't have to be a pastor to pray at someone's bedside. You don't have to be a pastor to pray with a friend who's having problems. Jesus' name is for all believers. Okay? For all believers. So Jesus puts this to rest. Now, the example that he holds before us the truth is that when we show love to others, we are showing love to Jesus himself. Himself. There is no distinction as far as God is concerned between a good work that most would consider trivial and others were considered important 
in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God. So, raising $7 million for a new school is no better than giving a cup of cold water to somebody that needs it. Same thing. To God, same thing. See, we're the ones that tend to rank these things. The old hymn verse, chief of sinners though I be, but there are some more that are worse than me. Okay? The fact is, we tend to rank everything we do as how much better or worse it is than somebody else. That's the way we justify ourselves before God. Ranking ourselves in the pecking order. Oh, we may not be the best. It's like the illustration in Vicar Wade's sermon this morning. I won't tell it because some of you still got to hear it. But the fact is, we're always wanting to be the best. And when we're not the best, we got excuses why we're not. And we never want to be the worst. God does not look at things like that. They are all works of love. And they don't gain us anything. They're just simply things we do. I've often told the church staff that we work and we see things happen and we see the Lord's work. But when it comes to the Lord working or, or seeing our works, the highest work that any staff member at this church does is a teacher at the early childhood center changing somebody's diaper and showing love to a child that's not even their own. That's a great work in the kingdom of heaven. So we shouldn't try to rank these things. They are all simply faith in action. The devotion is to Jesus. These things do not merit our participation in the kingdom of God. But they show that God is working in the hearts of his people, be it big or small. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were be thrown into the sea. How does this verse fit with the previous context? This verse looks backwards upon the concrete actions described in verse 41 and presumably the works of the man in verse 38. These actions bring others to the kingdom. All people are referred to as children, 
Okay. Do not prevent anything such as casting out a demon in Jesus' name or by one of his disciples trivializing giving a drink to a thirsty person. Because in trivializing these things or questioning them, you may cause one not to believe and one that does, well, it would have been better for him or her to be drowned. In other words, don't stand in the way of the extensions of God's kingdom. Don't bring judgment upon either the great thing or the trivial thing. Don't not do a trivial thing just because you think it's meaningless. Don't do anything that would prevent anyone from knowing the love of God. Now the next verse, you're going to notice some difference here. Notice there are no verses 44 and 46. Notice that? It's a footnote in the biblical text, 43, 45, 47. Why? Well, let's read these. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter the life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter the life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 44 and 46, the verses that are missing are exactly the same as verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So in other words, that verse is repeated after verse 43, that's verse 44, and after verse 45, that's verse 46, and again after 47. Why isn't it there? When you study the Greek text, there are there is no original source not just one there are lots of manuscripts of the gospel of mark or papyri when you're reading along in one manuscript that is one of the oldest and then you read a manuscript that's a couple of centuries later, and it's got additions, scribes, there were no Xerox machines, folks. They hand copied these manuscripts. Scribes that copied the manuscripts tended to add words 
to help understanding. So the rules are, the older the version it stands, and the shorter the version stands, because they tended to add words. By putting 48 in there three times, it really does nothing. So because this is in older manuscripts, they just put it in there once because it's in the older manuscripts. And they don't repeat it three times. All right? That's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. That's why there is no verse 44 and 46. They're exactly the same as 48. It is nothing that impairs the meaning of the text or changes the meaning of the text. So what is the text teaching? Okay. This is not a call for self-mutilation. Physical life in this world is nothing compared to the authentic, imperishable life granted in eternity. The teaching is we should be willing to give up anything in this life to have eternal life. Members of the human body should not be placed at the disposal of the sinful world. Whatever in life tempts us to be unfaithful to God must be discarded. Think about the martyrs. They would give even their physical life to God at all costs to have eternal life. Spiritual ruin. The darkest of terms is described here. That's where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But it's simply saying, don't put yourself in a position to use your physical body for sin. It's not worth it compared to eternal life. That's what it's teaching. Now, the last two verses, salted with fire is suffering or being refined by suffering. For the believer, salt was part of any Old Testament sacrifice, especially the grain offering. We are to be living sacrifices to God. In other words, suffering strengthens our faith. And as we are living sacrifices to God, that doesn't mean we don't suffer. But that suffering strengthens our faith. Now, that's verse 49. Okay? For everyone will be salted with fire. That is, go through a time of suffering. Then the definition of salt is changed. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, 
how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Salt is worthless when it's lost its taste. We dare not lose our salt. That is the quality within us that brings the life-giving message of Jesus to others. And if we don't care about that, then we've lost our salt. He does not want the disciples to lose their salt because they're going to bring Jesus to the world. And he doesn't want us to lose ours either. Always have a heart for the lost. All right. Questions? Yes. Uh, How does the first part of this relate to these preachers on TV that call people up and cast out demons? Or can we say they're legit? No. Uh, yeah. He asked, uh, what about the TV preachers that say they're casting out demons, healing the sick? Um, we can't cast judgment on that. We certainly cannot say it can't happen, because then we are limiting God. There are certain ones that we question because of other ethics, but we can't say it can't happen. Okay? Can't say it can't happen. Other things? All right, we're going to stop a few minutes early this morning because Mrs. Hohenstein needs to get her puppet show ready. And uh, they need an extra few minutes. So anything else? If not, we'll close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.